Welcome to What Is It About the Weather, a podcast where we explore the many ways that weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek. This week, does lightning strike twice, or three times, or four times? But as the phrase goes, does lightning strike twice? Since we always hear, lightning never strikes twice. But before we get there, Hope you're having a good weather week. Hope any weather entwinements were of a positive nature or an interesting or an informative nature at least. Not complicated. I've been dealing with fog. It's it's that time of year. So fall, season changing. It's not uncommon. But particularly when we're changing from the warmer to the colder season. Particularly when you're near bodies of water and stuff. It's just, it's foggy season, right? could shift a little bit where wherever you are of course different places have it other times of year but for in the area I'm in it's a common time of year to have a little bit of fog and I actually look for it because fog to me as someone who rides a bicycle is a good sign now a lot of people may say why do you want to ride in the fog well fog for it to form one of the things you need is a lot of stillness in the air at least for fog to really take hold and then say that you can't. But usually it's a good indicator that there's not a lot of wind, right? At least if it's hanging out, it's not burning off or, or being blown away, if you will. So I used it the other day as exactly an indicator of that. We had it for a few days in a row, kind of nights. You know, the afternoon kind of cleared up. Evenings kind of got yeah, misty, foggy look to them and repeat and refresh the next day sort of thing. And so we had that a few days in a row. And it was a good indicator as it was burning off during the day or as it was dissipating the day. A lot of what was dissipating it was wind changes, right? Some of it was the sun and, you know, heating of the earth changes, but some of it was wind. So I went and did a ride and I wish fog had been my only concern. So fog, not the problem for me. It was there. It was a good thing. It did indeed mean low winds, which was a nice thing to have for what I was trying to do, where I was trying to ride. Just all sorts of other complications like crazy hydro drilling people and I, state park policemen trying to run you off the road. All sorts of wonderful things. But I digress. Lots of fog. I think I'm going to get a little few more days of that, but then I'll probably transition back into We had a little bit on the warmer side for this time of year, but not unseasonably so. Going to get a little bit of a cold air push later this weekend. So we'll see what next week holds. But again, as I've mentioned before, I like it. I like the, you know, that every few days it's a little different, something, something different to be confronted with, not not the same old, same old. I know, I know there's plenty of you out there that would love sunny and a certain temperature range every day. And some of you have places that you live that for the most part it could give you that. Uh, I think I would go crazy in that type of environment. But the other thing that's happened recently in the last week or two has been a lot of the seasonal forecast, if you will. And we're dealing with a La Nina year, and that usually translates into certain types of weather patterns. People ask me about seasonal forecasts. How much should they trust them? How accurate are they? Those sort of things. And I guess the way to think about seasonal forecast is, and what I convey is, one, it depends on where you are. Sometimes certain weather patterns can be more predictive than others for where you are. But you got to always remember that a seasonal forecast is not sitting there and saying, you're not going to have snow or you're not going to be warm. You know, you're going to have, you know, a, a day where it's 80 
degrees Fahrenheit outside or something like that. What it's trying to tell you is more about the norms and how likely you are to deviate from what would be the normal averages for where you are. And that's the really the way to think about it. So if you have to plan for something like, you know, are you going to need extra fuel during the winter if you're in a traditionally cold place or firewood or whatever it might be, or something along those lines, or maybe a wetter or drier winter time, you know, maybe more, less snow kind of thing. It can be a reasonable predictor for certain locations. And I always caution people to understand what those are. If they don't know, ask somebody who does or who can help them figure that out. Because I can look at the same seasonal forecast and I can see different places present that data. And it can look kind of drastically different. Drastically might be a strong word, but meaningfully different for a layman looking at the, you know, a map, for instance, of the country they're in or whatever it is. And so it's good to know what the source of that material is and how effective those predictions are or the percentages around it. But I also, when people ask me, can, you know, how much can they really plan about that? And as I just said, it's more about, you know, maybe what to expect, but you can't exclude possibilities based on it. Right. It, it's, that's not what they're designed to do. They're designed to, you know, maybe a hedge one way or the other, plan a little more, a little less, but you know, to, to exclude would be not where you want to drive with that. And, you know, it's, it's like that same thing here. We are a tropical cyclone season and well, midst of political season as well. Same thing with here, you know, as I'm recording this, we're about to, I, there's another tropical cyclone that looks like it's about to form. Epsilon already did. We're getting close to tying on some fronts that 2005 season, which was the most active in the Atlantic. But as I mentioned before, there's other things we use to measure how severe a season's been. And it really depends on what you want to look at. And seasonal forecast, same way. It depends on what you're trying, your what your outcome or what your decision-making processes are. So if you want to have, you know, what were the most, sure, we might tie it. But in terms of accumulated cyclone energy, that ACE number I was talking to you about, it may not even be close. And that may be more meaningful. Or for you, you may be somewhere that all that matters is how many landfalls. And this may be a year where you you may be in an area more or less, I, you know, I think back to 2017 and all those landfalls that kind of blew through the smaller islands in the Caribbean. They haven't seen much activity this year, right? It's been kind of quiet for them. As busy as this year's been, it's not been very busy for them. So we all think about it different ways. And anybody who works with statistics will tell you, you can always get them to tell you whatever story you want to. That's how they work for anybody, whether it's, you know, trying to project how well a company's doing or politicians trying to give you some story, whatever it is. We can find a way to manipulate the statistics. What's important for you as a end user to look at is, does that number matter to me? And always go look for the number that matters to you. Same thing with seasonal forecasts because they're statistically based. They may be built on dynamical models, but they're trying to give you a percentage likelihood of this or that, right? And, you know, how relevant is that for you? And what difference will a little bit of change mean versus a lot of change? Yeah, all the things that we've got to digest when we're making decisions. And this has, you know, it's not just about weather, it's about how we go through life, right? So it's another example of that. All right, let's get, let's get to the main story. I'm rambling on too long about st- statistics and I can do that for days. Maracaibo, right? I mentioned this at the end of last week's episode. Take the time. 
look at a map of South America. If you've never done it before, just pause and, and open up a browser wherever you are on your phone. Or, and if you're listening and you can't do it right away, don't worry about it. You can do it later. But you'll have to take my word for it. Towards the north side of, the, of South America, and if you're looking at it, you'll it'll seem obvious when you look at it. There's a little area that looks like a notch, right? There's like almost like a couple little, I don't know, feelers or antlers towards the top. And it looks like a big bay. Right, that kind of cuts in where Venezuela and Colombia are, right? And at one point in time, this was actually a lake. It's really considered more of a, a quasi-lake, if you would, today, because it's it's mostly just a, a drainage basin for a river. But it forms kind of a shallow lake. It's not a very deep lake. I think when I was looking at it, it's at most like a couple hundred feet. So, you know, less than, I don't know, not even 75 meters at its deepest point. Right. But it's mostly a shallow kind of warm body of water. Around that bay or lake, whatever you want to call it, the terrain gets very hilly very quickly. Now, there is some kind of low-lying land around the immediate lake edge, if you will, but very quickly it rises on three sides to peaks that are anywhere in that kind of 12,000 foot or 3,500 meter range. All right. So as you can imagine, you've got this kind of surrounded state. Surface wise, it's about 13,000 square kilometers or a little over 5,500 square miles. Again, if you look at that map, you'll kind of get that context. So big body of water, not, you know, the biggest in the world or anything like that for a lake, but very sizable. Brackish water, as I mentioned, so saltwater-ish, freshwater-ish type of water that tiger sharks like, you know, because a little bit of both. Not know that, I don't know that there's any tiger sharks there, but it's, you know, there's certain creatures that thrive more in a kind of an in-between state. But if you think about the elevation of those mountains around it, and you think about where it sits in the Caribbean, so in the tropical zones, and it's important to recognize for those that don't live near the equator, the normal flow, most of us live in the mid-latitudes and our weather generally flows from west to east. And this is true north of the border or north of the equator, north of the border, north of the equator, south of the equator, either or. Okay. So we, we both kind of get the same flow from west to east. Now how our cyclones spin a little differently, but we both get the same kind of flow from west to east. Near the equator, just the opposite. Their norm is more east to west. Right. So when you look at that, the way the land sets up, you can kind of see how the normal flow would take kind of air coming out of the Caribbean, right, and push it into this lake. And that appears to be, when, I, when we were talking about last week, we were talking about lightning. So this place, you know, I've talked a little about the background, but what it's well known for is a tremendous amount of lightning, right? Now, it depends which story you read, but they say on average 300 days a year there's some lightning. At least half of the year there's major storms. There's some seasons that aren't as strong, January, February, and this probably has something to do and what we've learned over time with there's a, an area near the equator that we call the ITCZ. Where I'm not going to even get into the details of what that is, but it's an area where there's a lot of localized convective activity. And this little area can flow above and below the equator. In that January, February time frame, it's about as far south as it gets. Okay? And then it kind of starts swinging back up. And it's part of what triggers behavior for tropical cyclones in the Atlantic Basin. And this is why we tend to have a season, right? It's, it's 
going away from that season. But right now is the time when that area is most active because that zone of high instability, if you will, is very much pushing flow along that lake area. All right. All that warm, moist air comes in. You got these mountains around it with cold air kind of up above. In particular, that gives you a lot of at different elevations in the atmosphere, water versus ice. And water versus ice tends to, with its instability, also lead to a lot of lightning. And that's primarily what happens. There's some other things that localize here that might be impacting it. But it's just kind of a, it's the right sort of setup for this sort of thing to take place. But regardless of what it is, and that's why, I, you know, a lot of times I'd like to give you the weather background, but I don't want to dwell on it because I really want to talk about kind of a, you know, do a little what did weather influence history event here because it was an intriguing area to me. And when I was reading about it, even last week, I saw these stories coming up about historical events. And so I picked out a few. There are probably more, but it's a well-known area, you know, in Venezuela. And so over time, there have been a variety of events that happened there. So Americo Vespucci, who's, you know, one of the it's the dude that the Americas are named after, sailed into this place in 1499, right? He's an early European explorer that, that found this place. So before 1500. But as we all know, a lot of European influence in the Americas, and particularly in South America, Spain was predominant. But that doesn't mean that he, Spain was the only one doing things in this area. So one of the well-known pirates of the Caribbean, if you will, is Sir Francis Drake, right? British dude. Plundered different parts of... And this is tricky because back in that day, I put this. there's a sir in front of his name, right? So clearly the queen, king knew about him at the time and were happy with the guy. I think it was a queen at the time. I don't, I don't remember my exact details of who knighted Francis Drake. But, you know, he's doing this stuff and he's making the Spanish unhappy, or at least these Spanish settlements unhappy. And he had been pretty successful, but he pulled in this place, right, 15, I think it was 1595. So we're talking about 100 years later after the last thing we talk about. And he thought, cool, you know, nighttime attack. I'll do a nighttime attack. It had been apparently a strategy he used. Oopsie. <laughs> you know, I uh, thought he'd go in there. But it's kind of hard to be sneaky when the whole light, night sky is just lit up. And right, so on the water itself, unlike when you have lightning at elevation, you know, it can light up the scenery. But, it, you know, if you've got mountains and stuff around you, it's not necessarily going to make it easy for you to see somebody far away. But on open water, it just lit up everything. And his position was exposed. And so, needless to say, he was not successful at all. Didn't turn out well. And it's actually hard. when, Whenever you find these things that don't go well, you don't find much written about. It's interesting in literature. Like some of these things I cover, you have different versions. Like I might find an English version. You always have a native tongue version. But there's not much written about the exact date or anything else, particularly in English, because eh, no one wants to remember that, right? But in Spanish, there's a famous kind of epic poem about this person, um, written by De Vega, I think his name's Lope de, de Vega, and I want to say it was called La Dragoneta. No? 
Dragonte. Dragonte. That's what it was. Dragonte. And it does it's it's a word even made up, doesn't make sense. But he was known as the dragon, all right, in, in Spanish as well. And he did plunder other places successfully, like, you know, I mean he attacked from all the islands down to Venezuela and, and again was just plundering. That was kind of his gig. I'm sure he did well, maybe he did more than that. If I remember correctly, he was the first British person to circumnavigate the globe. So I mean, well known for some other things. But yeah, kind of taking goods. Um Again, as with all things, it depends on whose side you ask of that. But he, he's part of this epic poem, and, and there's more reference to when it was and all those sort of things in their side because it worked out for them in this case. Uh, but it just it highlighted the fact that smart dude, been successful a lot of times, didn't know the regional weather, right? And we say, we've seen this with some of the other weather and history scenarios, or is it kind of caught them off guard? Sometimes there, it's just it catches everybody off guard. They know that things can come and go, but an individual event uh, like you know the stuff around D Day or whatever it was, it'd be very meaningful. In this case, he was just unawares, right? So then you wonder, okay, he, the story's got to be getting out. Don't don't go in there and do anything stupid that time of day. What would happen after that? Well, as it turns out, this lake again proved to be the final battle in the Venezuelan War of Independence from Spain, right? That started around 1821, so now we're talking another 130-some-odd years or so. But by 1823, on July 24th again, good dates on this one, there's a little more documentation about what went down. But what was particularly interesting is all the battles took place during the day. And I'm assuming it's because even both sides in this case were aware that, well, this may be the the place the battle's going to take place. Fighting this at night is going to be stupid, right? Because that's when these storms tend to kick off. Not during the day, but it's a, it's more of a nighttime phenomenon. Late afternoon, nighttime sort of thing. So it seems like they learned that fighting at night was stupid, right? So maybe... Maybe that's the thing, is even though weather can influence history, maybe we can, hopefully, and, and I looked back at some of the other cases when, you know, some of them, like I said, were individual events, and it's, you can know what's going on, but you always take the risk, and it's always a gamble. But in certain cases, it seems sort of obvious that, hey, you just don't do that in, in this sort of scenario, and we do seem to have learned that, and we incorporate it into how we handle individual areas. So it does seem that while weather can change history, and, and again, it, it, those are the sorts of things that may explain why, you know, one was an independence from Spain, but it may have also suggested why, why Spain was able to keep influence in regions because they were in the right place, right time, or did understand things. Because just imagine if battles had gone a different way 100 years ago. Who knows, right? So I don't know that it particularly changed history in this case, but it highlighted the, the relevance to whether for a strategic fortification location, which it was, right? And, and actually, there was an interesting thing aside from that. So, you know, a lot of talk over the years about pirates in this region. And there was another one. I don't, he was French. I don't even remember. His he, his adopted pirate name was Jean David. It, it was Jacques or something, but he didn't go by his real name, of course. And in, I think it was like 1666. So between these two things, there was this fortification that was built there to protect kind of the strait where ships could come, come and go. 
and it was believed to be impenetrable. It's like the, you know, the prison, no one can escape. We always find out there's a way, right? But this guy, pirate, man of the sea, he ended up with about 260,000 Spanish dollars. And we're talking, you know, 1666 money, probably a lot of, a lot of jack, right? And he did it as a pirate, not by attacking from the sea. He sailed around and went landward because all of the fortification was facing outwards towards the sea and attacked it from land and overthrew it. <laughs> so there is a way. There's there's smartness in everything. And the chick that he probably ran into, and I didn't see much detail about it, is I'm guessing he did that within the night, right? And so I'm wondering how he avoided it. But to give back, you know, to bring it back to the weather a little bit, this place gets millions of strikes a year, right? So certainly while lightning may have never, you know, hit the exact same inch again in time, it likely has given how many strikes it gets. There are areas that just get a lot more convective activity, and that happens to be one of them. And yes, lightning can strike twice. <laughs> you know, again, it may not generally hit the same location, and generally within the same storm, it may not do it. But uh, you know, with as much when they can get. You know, storms that last 10 hours and that can give hundreds of bolts an hour, it doesn't matter if it's close enough, right? People people come up with those sort of phrases they're used to storms that are moving maybe west to east, right? These are storms that kind of build and sit in place. I, I wouldn't want to do it. And these are the types of things when I would fly a little more commonly from the U.S. to South America and we pass through this ITZZ thing that I was telling you about. You go through these storms and you see them and you see the flashes of lightning out the side. And I, this zone I've flown by many times and I know exactly where it is. And I constantly have seen it. And usually what I'm hopeful for is the storms stay over there and aren't closer to me. Right. So I am very familiar with watching this kind of storm take place. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Like I said, it didn't turn into a weather that changed history. I found some interesting stories that were weather-related, some that weren't weather-related. It's an intriguing geographic thing. And a lot of times with fortification, you know, we live in a different world now, right? And people seem to forget sometimes how these sort of physical fortifications and even natural fortifications like this, like how much of an influence they had when, when all the battles, all the waging of, of things had to take place. You know, we weren't flying in the air. We weren't attacking from above and you know, weather still influences that, but it's still different today. You know, when you had to do everything hand to hand, it was greatly different in the, the influential nature in a very small zone like this and why something so localized as these storms could have such a meaningful impact over the years. Still, lots of people live there. They've learned to deal with it, though. And yes, people do die there every year from lightning strikes. Still sad. You would think by now they understand that, but, you know, sometimes we get called out in these situations. Someone gets caught out, surprised. It happens. All right. I don't know. These sort of things intrigue me. I hope they intrigue you. I like the thought of how weather shapes not only our lives today, right? Everything we do now, but how that process of impact has evolved over generations and millennia. If you have something you want, you've heard or a story you want to explore, don't hesitate. Send it my way. I've got a couple more in the hopper. Like I said, I tend to spread these out. 
because I don't want to just, that's not the goal of this show is to do only that. But I always find these episodes intriguing and doing the research is always an interesting aspect for me. You know how to get me. What is it about the weather? Gmail.com. What is it about the weather on Twitter? Mark underscore Jelinek on Twitter. However you want to get hold of me. It's great. For those of you I haven't uh, said in a while who's thanking me, uh, or thanking me, I want to take a moment to thank you that support me on Patreon. For those who have not, but have considered it in the past, I'll take this moment to say patreon.com slash weather. You can find me there as well. Learn more about how to support the podcast and the things we do here. But until next time, until next time, may you have some interesting weather, some fascinating weather, even some dull weather if that's what you prefer. But may it in some way prompt you to go, aha, interesting. Because as we all know, there's much more to weather than the weather itself. <laughs>